Roth, thank you so much for inviting me to a guest service at your church to hear the gospel message. Let me embrace you. No, I guess we didn't expect that. You might have expected a more neutral response. Thank you, but maybe not this time. I'm a little bit busy. Not quite sure what with yet, but I'm busy. What did you expect? J.C. Ryle wrote this. He was a bishop at the end of the last century up in Liverpool. I won't use the Liverpoolian accent because he didn't have one and you wouldn't understand it. Uh, But uh, he wrote this to realign expectations of the church folk in his day. He said this. Human nature is far more wicked and corrupt than we think. The power of evil is far greater than we suppose. It is vain to imagine that everybody will see what is good for them and believe what we tell them. It is expecting what we shall not find and will only end in disappointment. Happy is that labourer for Christ who knows these things at his first starting and is not to learn them either by bitter experience. Here lies the secret cause why many have turned back who once seemed full of zeal to do good. They began with extravagant expectations and they did not count the cost. Were you once full of enthusiasm? And did you once have extravagant expectations for when you invited people to guest services? And yet that seems to have waned a little bit. Perhaps you underestimated the cost. I think too often, as Ryle puts it, we have unrealistic expectations. He said this, it is expecting what we shall not find and will only end in disappointment, he says. And disappointment is such a difficult thing to manage in a church, in ourselves individually, but also corporately. And just think back a week, were you, as you came in, disappointed that you know, there weren't queues down to Sainsbury's to come in to hear the gospel. We had, uh, I counted exactly, we had nearly 100 people, not quite, but nearly 100 people at church last week to hear the gospel. We couldn't have fitted everyone in in one service for the number of chairs we had. Even those of you who are so kind to double up, if you take those away, we still wouldn't have had enough people to fit in in one service. It was extra work, people did that extra work and we are so thankful to you for that but God honoured that work and people came what we experienced last week I guess even if one person had come that was miraculous and we should be thankful but some people came and for that we should be very thankful and some of those people would like to hear more so we should be extraordinarily extraordinarily thankful That wasn't massive, was it? No, it wasn't. But what were your expectations? Did you walk away disappointed? Or did you walk away thrilled, thanking God for the work that he'd done amongst us? So what we're going to do today, I think, is try and get some biblical expectations before we experience any more disappointment in ourselves and also corporately. Um, If you've expressed disappointment at what God did last week, then maybe you need to rethink. Maybe you even need to repent. Let's look at what the Bible says. Let's get our heads back into Matthew if we can, Matthew 10. Let's see where we've come from. What do you remember if we looked at? Not last week, week four and the week before that as well. Let's see. Well, Matthew really kind of is plotting the picture that King Jesus has arrived um, and uh, his authority over all things is firstly shown in his words 
in the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 to 7, then through his miraculous deeds, and that's chapters 8 and chapters 9, okay? Jesus then went around all the towns and villages, we saw at the end of chapter 9, verse 35 there, proclaiming that he was the king of the eternal kingdom of God, and also he was the way into that kingdom of God. Now, we we learnt in that end of chapter 9, verse 35, 38, he didn't look down upon the people. Uh, He didn't sit on his moral kind of high horse, pointing the finger, saying, I'm in there, you're not. Look at me, aren't I great, you're not. No. What did he do? He had compassion on the people. They were harassed and helpless spiritually. And he encourages the disciples also to have that same view of the people, the crowds, To have compassion on them. That works itself out in two ways. Do you remember? Firstly, persistent prayer. And then secondly, public and confident proclamation of this gospel message. That the kingdom is near in the person of Jesus. Now this message first went out with the apostles. But as we saw two weeks ago, I don't know if you remember, as you look through the end of chapter 10, these words start cropping up with quite a great regularity. The word whoever and anyone, again and again and again, from verse 32 onwards, again and again. Have a look at it if you want later. That is, Jesus is suggesting that it's not just the apostles' responsibilities, whoever, anyone. The kingdom of God was near. We need to pray and we need to proclaim the person of Jesus Christ. But what should be the expectation for Jesus' followers as we go about that privileged work of making Jesus know? Oh, we need to know because it's all, all too easy to have very inappropriate um, expectations when we're proclaiming the gospel. And therefore, it's very easy to become disappointed. I wonder if you saw this week, I know Gordon will have done because he's a cyclist, a, a, a stage in the Giro d'Italia. Is that right? Yeah. I can't even pronounce it. It's the Tour de France of Italy, basically. Big cycle race, you know, men in little bikes cycling along, climbing up mountains and all that kind of stuff. Stage 19 was shut down this week. Big news for Gordon. The rest of us, pretty insignificant. Okay? Now, the cyclists lined up, stage 19 at Ponte di Legno. Yeah, just, just on the foothills of, of the Dolomites. There they were in the light outfits, you know. Bikes with the kind of wheels like razor blades, carbon fibre, everything, up, ready to go. Their expectations were to cycle all day up these kind of mountains. You know, it's May, going to get all hot and then come down again. But the problem is they hadn't really mapped out their expectations properly because they hadn't looked at the weather forecast and they stood on the, on the starting line and, and, and someone then rang down and said, you do realise that on the second mountain you're about to go up, there's three foot of snow and it's minus 20 degrees. Are you sure you want this race to go ahead? They surprisingly said no, and they cancelled that race. And the expectations were all wrong. They hadn't looked um, at what might be ahead. The men were disappointed. Prize money was missed and points were lost in the, in the kind of race. So we need to have realistic expectations. They didn't in that race. But as we go out and make Jesus known, we've got to be realistic about what to expect. If we don't, we will be disappointed. So how does Jesus set our expectations? Look at at verse 16 if you can. Just to get your heads in, in gear there. I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore be as shrewd as snakes 
and as innocent as does. So if like expectation setting number one, our point there, we are to be sent out like sheep among wolves. We'll be sent out like sheep among wolves. Now, at this moment, I'd love to share with you some kind of experience that I've had with sheep and wolves. <clears throat> but I'm not Bear grills, so I haven't had any experience of wolves at all. And I'm not a farmer in Scotland, and I don't have a gun or anything like that. So, you know, I don't have any experience in this at all. Um, I have little experience with sheep, apart from on barbecues. Um, and so that's, that's about my limit there. But one time, actually, walking the Lake District... I did come across a, a nearly dead sheep. It was interesting. I was, this was when I was a student. And, and it, there wasn't wolves, I don't think, in Lakeshire, but I think foxes had got to it. And it was in a very bad state. And what we had to do, we had, we had to, you know, we rang up Mountain Rescue, or we met them, and we had to throw it off the cliff. It was a very sad uh, moment, but it was the only kind thing to do to the sheep. Now, I don't think we're, we're going to struggle to understand the illustration here. I'm going to work with this illustration, if I possibly can, for a moment. Jesus uses it because it is that bloody. It is that kind of gory in a sense. Notice a few things about the illustration that Jesus uses. It's a singular sheep. There are plural wolves. I mean, you put one on one, the sheep has got no chance, even with one against one. No, it's a bloodbath. Brutal. Any attack on these kind of in these kind of situations, of course, it's unprovoked, isn't it? And it seems being sent out like this, Jesus sending us out, it seems quite cruel, doesn't it? And at best foolish. But what did you expect? When we go out to invite people to church to tell them about Jesus, I think what Jesus is saying here, we should expect unprovoked attack merciless attack and persecution it doesn't use the sheep and the wolves analogy for no good reason and if that's true can, you've got to ask the question haven't you is Jesus there is he really the good shepherd to be doing that to us sending us out like this now we need to look at what he says. He sends us out. He realizes the danger, doesn't he? So he, the second part of that verse gives us some wisdom to act upon, doesn't it? It says that we need to be both shrewd and innocent, it says. You see, that shrewd really means kind of wise. That is, we're not, we're not seeking persecution. We're not looking for wolves. Please attack us. No. We're not welcoming pain. No, that's not the case. So not to make uh, Christ known through conquest and kind of martyrdom. We saw that a bit this week, didn't we, in Woolwich, very sadly. No, you see, prayer and proclamation, they're the tools of war for the Christian. Not a butcher's knife and vitriolic insults. We're to be shrewd as snakes, he's saying here. Wise. But let's not be deceived in our kind of middle class um, kind of Britishness here. Let's not be deceived into thinking that all the kind of political manoeuvring, the, the savvy talking that we might use at work to get the deal sorted, you know, that anything like that is going to make the wolves kind of go away or welcome us. Say, oh, it's, a, it's great, very pleasant to meet you. I'm a wolf, you're a sheep. Come in here. Yeah. No, our, our very intelligent conversation is not going to change much. I don't know if you've ever tried to negotiate with a wolf. Maybe you should try it. 
Just this week, a, a young woman died, didn't she, of being mauled by a tiger in a zoo in Cumbria. It's very sad news, but it's a sobering reminder what a wild animal is like and why it's called a wild animal. A wolf is a wild animal. The image Jesus paints here is not tame. And therefore, I hope your, your expectations are being realigned a little bit. Now, we must be obedient. We've got to get out there. We've got to make the, the message of Jesus Christ known. But we're to be wise in the way we do it. But we are to expect persecution. But we, notice it also says we're to be innocent as doves there. That is uncompromised in the message we proclaim. The innocence there is a kind of a purity. Without blemish is kind of literally a saying there. Now, too often churches, and maybe you've been guilty of this too, individuals, we, we like to water down the message to make it more palatable. Uh, probably to reduce the danger of the message. Yes, we need to make sure that we can explain the gospel and defend the gospel without causing needless offence. Absolutely, that's what we call apologetics, the way we teach that. But we must expect that when we teach the message of Jesus Christ... Many will think it is foolishness, as 1 Corinthians tells us. And they will want to hurt us in some way as a result. Well, maybe not physically in our country, but there might be a bit of mockery there. So as we go out, sent out by Jesus, we must be shrewd, wise, and innocent. That is uncompromising with the message. Jesus sums that up. Go on to verse 17 there. He says, be on your guard. Be on your guard against men. I guess the women are included in that. There's a, a readiness, an expectation that we ought to possess. It's not to be overly defensive, but it's also not to be overly offensive as well. But we must be prepared. Be on our guard. It can be translated, take your stand. Against what? Well, Matthew is a, he's a really methodical writer here. And uh, You'll see a structure that is coming out in these following verses. Look at the nature of opposition that we should expect to face. And it's structured really kind of well in these following verses. Verse 17 and 18, we see the opposition that we should take our guard against. And that comes in the form of two things. Synagogue, firstly, and then state. That's in verse 17 and 18. But then Matthew structures it brilliantly. He shows what the opposition is, followed by the heavenly provision to take on that opposition. So you get opposition in the synagogue in state in verse 17. Verse 19, there's a heavenly provision. And then in verse 20 to 22, you get the opposition of family and friends, close loved ones. And then you get the heavenly provision in verse 23. We'll go through that and we'll see what that looks like in a moment. So Jesus, he sends us out, but he's, he also, as the good shepherd, is helping us to know our opposition and provides for us to take our stand against that opposition. So let's go on to our second point, which is to know your opposition and also that, that heavenly provision. Looking at that structure that we've just, uh, I've just mentioned there as well. Look at verse 17, though, at the end of that. Look, who does the persecuting? It's interesting, isn't it? Have a look. Local councils are mentioned there. Synagogues. Let's summarise that as the established church, if we can. Then also go on, verse 18, you get governors. You get kings. Let's, let's summarise that as a state, as it was in the time. What we see, therefore, is that as we make the kingdom of God known, as we proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ, it's the religious establishment 
that will be one of the major sources of opposition to the Christian who is faithful to God's word. And we see that in our a little sub-point there. It is the religious establishment. I've put the provision in italics there. It's the Spirit's words, which is the provision. Let's go firstly and look at the opposition of the religious establishment. They will hand over Christians who dare to proclaim Christ to the state for sanction. And we ultimately see this, of course, in Jesus, who's handed over from Jews to Pilate. And then Pilate hands, them, uh, hands Jesus over, doesn't he, to the Roman soldiers to be flogged. And crucified. Problem is, I guess that in England, in Great Britain, we we haven't really felt this for a long time. 150, 200 years, I guess. I mean, since the Victorian era, where Christians were more kind of influential in society, forming laws, and kind of giving a kind of moral backbone to society. Since then, we've we live without kind of obvious persecution from the religious establishment and the state in this country. But I want to say, I think the times are changing a little bit. And don't forget those, obviously the Bible applies the whole way around the world, then think of those around the world, who every day in their history, in their country, have known a great, massive opposition from the religious establishment in their country and definitely the state. We've prayed for some of those countries already tonight, this afternoon. But here we have uh, known, I guess, a period of safety in this country. But do not be naive about the very likely future. Think, who persecuted Jesus? Who persecuted Paul? Well, it was the religious establishment of the time. Let me take you back through church history very, very briefly. Think 500 years ago, Martin Luther, the great reformer. And he there, studying the Bible, especially Romans in its original language, it discovered the wonderful doctrines of grace that had been suppressed by the religious establishment. And for preaching them, he was suppressed and was threatened to be killed on a number of occasions by the religious establishment. A century later, who hounded the, uh, the Puritans out of this country for their desire to live in a Christ-like way formed by the, from the, by the Bible? Well, it was the religious establishment. What about the, let's say, the Huguenots in, in France a century later? Well, they were the Protestant Reformed Church, like us in, in this country. They were so persecuted in France that most actually fled the country. A great number of them did. But so many were killed in the massacre of 1572 that it is said in history that the River Seine in Paris flowed, let me just quote it, glistened red with their blood. Who did it? The religious establishment. Whitfield Wesley in the 18th century were banned from preaching. Their bits of dead animals were thrown at them by who? The religious establishment. In the USA today, evangelical Episcopal church ministers are being evicted from their houses and their church buildings on a weekly basis for remaining orthodox in their Bible teaching. Who's doing it? The religious establishment. But you'll say something like, oh, that's history. Oh, that's over there. That's not here. This is Great Britain. Let me give you two examples of friends of mine. Tron Church in Glasgow. Gilmkirsten Church in Aberdeen. They're both the largest churches in those respective cities. And both have had to leave their buildings in the last two months. Because they want to remain orthodox uh, to the Bible. 
and teach the Bible faithfully. And they've been thrown out of their church buildings and thrown out of their houses. And those families are now, one of them is homeless or try, trying to find a house very, very quickly. Just simply because they want to teach the Bible. What about us, though? Well, to be honest, I think the elders and I do what we can to protect many of you from what the religious establishment think of us being here. But they have been and will continue to be, I guess, one of the greatest opponents to making Christ known in Earlsfield, very sadly. I'll give you a little taster regarding our service last week, just alone. I've been told by local church ministers that we're utterly wasting our time for preaching the gospel that we're arrogant bigots and that we've been sworn at as well by a number of people by the established church. From non-Christian friends, I guess I've been congratulated, uh, I've been thanked for dealing with issues that need to be addressed. And you kind of got to work out from that, who are the wolves? Who are the wolves? We've enjoyed a relative peace in this country, but the future, I don't think, is so inviting. I have no doubt that all of us in future years will be described as bigots, or worse, maybe. And ironically, to preserve free speech, I would imagine that actually some of us may even be suppressed, even locked up. And you are probably thinking right now, you're certainly thinking, utterly ridiculous. Don't go too far, Andy. You're, You're pushing it. Let me give you some examples, if I can. In Australia, just a year ago, recently, a a pastor was jailed for warning his congregation about the dangers of Islam. Simply, he read three sections from the Quran and made some comments, and he's in prison. In Sweden, a pastor was jailed for upholding orthodox teaching about marriage in his church. Someone was there who found that offensive. Same in Canada about five years ago. I can't remember the exact date of that. In the EU recently, um, a, uh, an MEP from Italy was banned from the Parliament because he was recorded um, on his blog, I think it was, to have biblical views that were viewed as intolerant on the issue of sexuality. Now, we're not to look for persecution. We're not. But we're not to be naive. We should expect it. The walls are out there in history and increasingly today. And they are handing over biblical Christians to the state for sanction again and again and again. Please pray for yourselves, for me. I have to deal with this far too often. I don't enjoy it. Um, And it's not very pleasant at times. But pray that as in verse 20. Look at verse 20 if you can for a second. Here's the heavenly provision. When we face persecution... Pray for those spirit-inspired words that they will be yours in those times of persecution. That you speak the words that the Spirit gives you. And that we need to trust in these words as we make Christ known. But our expectations must be right. We need to know our wolves. And we need to know that. So we're not paralysed by fear. But similarly, we're not naive to the dangers and the realities of sharing the gospel of Christ. Likewise, you see the same pattern happening in the following verses. We're going to very quickly dive through those. Um, the nature of the opposition and the heavenly provision, you see that in our second little sub-point there. That you see those closest to you, uh, 
Verse 21 is pretty harrowing, isn't it? And then the provision of refuge. We'll look at that in a second. Look at verse 21. It's a very, very sad reality. But the call of Christ there is to stand firm and to enjoy the salvation that you both proclaim and that you've been saved for. The heavenly provision is ultimately the salvation that we know in Christ, the good shepherd. The one who's laid down his life for us to provide an eternal salvation for his sheep. He may send us out to wolves to make him known, yes, but we are safe. We are ultimately safe if we put our trust in him. He's the good shepherd. He will take us home. But his provision also comes here in these verses in the opportunity of finding another place. Moving on to the next town or village and so on in these verses. Find another person. Tell them the gospel too. And the end of verse 23 seems to suggest that there's, a, there's a, an, an endless opportunity. A very contentious verse. But it seems to suggest that, that there's so much opportunity to proclaim the gospel. Think about it just in your context, your workplace. You might have told two people, maybe three people. They might know you're a Christian. You might have invited three out of the 12 in your team. There's more people. Move on, he's saying. You know, think about people in your street. Ask someone else. If persecuted, come. Move on. It's a heavenly provision that God has provided. Of course, you keep praying for those. Of course, you do who have maybe rejected you, maybe even persecuted you. Keep praying for them. But realise there's a provision of moving on and telling someone else the gospel too. So know your opposition, but also know God's provision, both today, as we see in verse 23, but also ultimately in Christ the Good Shepherd. Lastly, very quickly. It's a fun talk, this one, isn't it? Expect a ruined reputation. Never have I ever had such a chirpy point in a sermon. Expect a ruined reputation. Sheep sent out like wolves. Out to wolves, sorry. Expecting opposition. Trusting in the heavenly provision of the good shepherd. But it gets better. Look at it. We should expect a ruined reputation. Why? Well, the point is there. It comes from the text. We're not above our teacher or our master. You see, the example there is of Jesus, who was uh, he's just accused of being the devil himself, Beelzebul. To be godly and Christ-like will at times be, it will mean being accused of all sorts of things. I wondered whether we could do this. I, we won't, but imagine if I went around and just said, look, what have you been called as a Christian? Whether it's in the workplace, amongst friends. What are the names that people have thrown out to you and labelled you as? I'll give you a few. You're fundamental. You're totally unchristian for teaching that stuff. You're a sect. I got that once because I said, yeah, I'll get, this is in a church gathering of church ministers. I simply got that because I said, yeah, we meet on the first Tuesday of the month for prayer meeting and then we meet for home groups on the other three Tuesdays of the month, you're a sect. I've been called a crazy literalist. None of which of those are true, I don't think, at all. I don't think they've got any foundation. And I'm sure you could add to that list of other things that maybe your friends and others around you have called you. My friend, actually, when I I was talking about this week, he said, here's one. He even topped any of mine. 
He said he's been called, he's in London, and he said he's been called the Al-Qaeda of the Church of England. I thought that beats everything that I've ever been called. So I felt pretty good about myself. But we're not above our teacher and master. He was accused of being worse. He was accused of being Beelzebub, the devil himself. And people will say anything to ruin your reputation, to undermine the message that you're proclaiming. So expect it, but don't be crippled by it. And you won't be if you expect it and if you know the good shepherd, your saviour, has faced the same and worse. Rather, it will be an assurance to you that you're aligned with him. We're not above our teacher and master. Maybe, just to finish, maybe you're looking for a time and a place when Christians will not be oppressed and mocked. Oh, what if I just go to, what if I go to Australia? That'll be fine. What if I go back home or somewhere else? Everything will be fine then. No. Do you know there has never been a time and nor there will ever be a time or a place where Christians aren't persecuted. If you share your faith with others, if you dare to make it known, you will face some hostility. So don't be naive. You need to get your expectations right. I just want to end with this. It's very quickly. I just want to read the verse to you because I think our time is up. I just want to ask the question, is it worth it? Because you can get to the end of a talk like that and think, whoa, that was a bit heavy. And, you know, really, it's too much. Andy, the expectation's too high. Why don't you just cast your eyes down to verse 32? We'll look at this next week. Sorry, in two weeks' time. But look at verse 32 and ask yourself, is it worth it? Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. And you have to ask yourself, is it worth it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray from my own heart now, I, I look forward and imagine that day when standing in the throne room, the Son approaches and acknowledges me. Lord, there's nothing more brilliant and exciting for the Son, uh, the, the one who's uh, conquered death, the one who is everything and in control of everything, to acknowledge me before you, our Heavenly Father. Lord, that is, that is just overwhelming. And yet that is the promise of your word. Lord, all that we've heard today, it, it does seem overwhelming. It seems hard. It seems difficult. It seems unfair. And yet that is the reality of making Christ known in this world. And it will always be the reality. So help us to get our expectations right. But our expectations should be utterly moulded by that future hope and certainty and joy. That you will stand there and acknowledge us before your Heavenly Father. Lord, we, we look forward to that day. We want to live in the light of that day. Help us to do that, we pray. Amen.
for explaining the passage to us.